right, we're going to be covering today verses 16 through 21 of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. And uh, in order to show honor and respect to the Lord and to pay reverence to the fact that this is God's word spoken and preached over us today, if you are able and willing, would you be able to stand with me as I read aloud the text that we're going to visit today? For we did not know, pardon, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased." We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Back when I was in college, I was heavily involved in a college ministry in my town. And uh, during my college years, in particular during my early years of a relationship with my love, Katie, uh, I remember going through a number of very tumultuous times. I remember one particular season of, of trial. Uh, one thing that I really struggled with was the question of, of who I could trust. I, I began to kind of question pretty constantly my salvation, whether or not I was truly a believer. And I remember that I would, I would often find myself kind of walking on these long late night walks that you do when you're having existential crises. And, and I would talk to God with great frustration. And I remember wishing that he would just open up the sky and speak to me, that he would open the heavens and just talk to me. And uh, I, I remember being in such frustration that I would kind of run through in my mind these different reasons that I had for trusting the fact that I was indeed in Christ. And often these reasons would be bound to things like people. Um, I, I would, for instance, tell myself, well, I must be saved because Cody Klein, my pastor at the time, Cody Klein has reassured me over and over that this must be true. Or experiences would be tied to this. I'd say, well, it must be true because I remember that night weeping on the floor in that hotel surrounded by 12 other men who were praying for me and crying with me as I was finally broken by my sin. That was when I began treasuring the blood of Christ. I began hating the taste of my own self-love so much that I would spit it from my mouth if I could be rid of it forever. At times I would reassure myself, based on my beliefs, I remember thinking to myself, I must be saved. I've read Jonathan Edwards. I believe that God is sovereign over every aspect of my life, and no one could be so theologically mature without being a Christian. 
shows truly how mature I was. What makes this story, though, even more sad is that no matter where I would turn to for comfort, for assurance, for assurance that I was truly in Christ, no matter what I sought to trust in, I always had very, very good reason to doubt. For a man like Cody Klein, was at best a man. Mourning and weeping over my sin was just a fleeting moment, and doctrinal belief was just my own belief. And who was to say that someone else didn't get it right instead of me? And while at the time, I really struggled believing that the Lord was doing me harm by holding goodness at bay and allowing me to struggle for so long with no assurance of salvation. But by His grace, over the the years and the decade that have followed, I'm since able to look back and be very, very grateful for the Lord keeping me in discomfort and disarray as He robbed me of the things that I would trust in that were futile. Because believe it or not, all of this struggle really came down to one question. Can I trust what God says? Or is there something else that I need? This question's been around for a long time. In fact, I would say it's probably been around longer than you may believe it is. And I, I think it would be prudent for us to, to look at the fact the very first time this question was asked. Can I really trust what God says? Or is there something else that I need? You see, in Genesis 3, we see this same question asked that is often asked in our own hearts today. Satan's grand plan, in fact, started and hinged in the robbing of God of his glory in all life and good. It hinged on this question. Satan didn't simply need to convince uh, Adam and Eve to, to murder one another. Satan didn't need to convince Adam and Eve that there was no God. Satan in the garden had to do one thing. He offered up an alternative opinion to God's. That which stood against God's revelation. His clear word. And then that first question took its root in the heart of mankind. Now this was the first time that this question had been asked. Yet, It was only the beginning of that question that would be stringing and ringing throughout all history, even today. But by God's grace, in that passage that I just read today, in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21, we find an excellent answer to this very common question. Peter tells us the answer to the question, can I really trust what God says, or is there something else that I need? And so as we turn our eyes to 2 Peter, we're going to see him make three movements as he defends and marks his answer. Movement number one, we'll see in verse 16. As we see, Scripture is rooted in historical fact and validated by the firsthand witness of the miraculous works of God. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Peter begins by assuring his audience 
that the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ was not simply a very cleverly crafted wives' tale. Peter's audience was being grieved and afflicted by false teachers who were teaching contrary to God's word. Peter would soon in this letter go on then to, in fact, indict and and, and promise the downfall, the coming downfall of these false teachers who crafted their teaching not according to what God says, but what seemed to be right in their own eyes. They were teaching what Paul describes to Timothy as myths and endless genealogies. And so Peter borrows this very language to make it clear that the trustworthiness of his message does not hang on man's opinion. Rather, Peter says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So, how is it that we can know that Peter is not simply passing on the local gossip? Because when you read the word of God, you're not getting secondhand information according to his claim. He's not like the false teachers who dream up what kind of beliefs will match their desired end. Rather, he is an eyewitness of the Lord of glory. It it used to amaze me, the more I studied into how we came to have the full and complete canon of God's word, the more I've been left convinced that God has uniquely defended his word over the millennia. For instance, we have more than 1,000 1,000 times the original manuscript data of the New Testament than we do for the average, any average, Greco-Roman author. Okay, that's a fancy pants way of saying that we have over 1,000 times higher likelihood of knowing the exact true words of the eyewitness Peter than being able to confidently quote Plato or Socrates. A thousand times higher of a likelihood. We have a 1,000 times better shot of having the exact words Jesus said written here in this book than literally anything said by Alexander the Great. A man of literally global consequence. A man whose every word would have been recorded and written down. It, It shouldn't shock me, but the amazing defense of God's word through the millennia. It's it's vividly seen. And Peter is saying just that. When we read Scripture, we do not merely read history as told by one perspective. Rather, we read the truth of God that has been testified to by firsthand witnesses of His miraculous works. And God Himself has guarded and handed this down from generation to generation to now. We see then in movement two, verses 17 through 19. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is going to help us here with what I would say is possibly one of the most significant aspects of this text for our generation. Here he describes an example of that which he was an eyewitness to. So he was an eyewitness, which is why we can know that he's trustworthy. But what was he an eyewitness to? Amazingly, he uses this example of one of the 
most incredible miracles recorded in Scripture. He describes that day, that fateful day of Jesus' transfiguration, which is described in three of the different gospel accounts. When Jesus took his three closest apostles up on a mountain, and as they were praying, the completely human Jesus of Nazareth pulled back the veil of his humanity, and he exposed himself as the great I am. He was seen vividly as the Son of Man, the glorious Yahweh, God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He who is infinite peeled back the finite in which he fully dwelled. The never created one, the creator, revealed his eternal glory through his 30-year-old created body. If you've not spent any significant time meditating on the passages that describe the transfiguration, I would encourage you to do so. Let it lose you and melt you into awe. But not only do we see this magnanimous reality of God, the infinite, being shown through in Jesus Christ on the mountain, but Peter himself is a witness. And he actually sees with his own eyes two of the pinnacles of the Old Testament law, Elijah and Moses, standing with Jesus. He saw with his physical eyes the God who dwells in unapproachable light. Like in Isaiah, uh, when, when Isaiah in Isaiah 6 describes himself standing in the throne room of God, Peter falls to the ground, overwhelmed and coming undone by the magnitude of the radiance of the Holy One who is over all and in all and through all and above all and to all. This glorious God was viewed by this lowly fisherman. Not only this, that would be enough. But he says, we've heard the very voice born from heaven. He heard with his physical ears the audible voice of God from heaven. That very voice that spoke from his omnipresence and everything from the microbiological cell to entire solar systems exploded into life. That very voice was the very audible voice that ripped through the fabric of creation to speak into the ears of Peter. The tiny hairs of Peter's ears vibrated with the voice of God that shook Mount Sinai so violently that the Israelites begged Moses to no longer let him speak. Can you just take a second and think through the experience Peter is describing here? This eyewitness experience that he felt, he heard, that he lived through. Most Christians, if you're anything like me, think they would never need a single thing from God. Again, if they had an experience like that. Could you imagine? Could he ever forget such an event? Tell you what, could anyone in a million years convince Peter that God didn't do that exact thing he felt? The exact thing he saw, the exact thing he heard, those sensations that he experienced. As he was perceiving the glory of God. And Peter says something very important to us. 
He's not bragging. Instead, he's saying what we desperately need to hear. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He heard. He saw. He felt. He experienced. He dropped to the ground while being undone by the glory of God. And what does he say? After everything you saw, Peter, after everything you went through, you think there's something even more trustworthy than your most realistic feelings? Then your deepest held beliefs, your most treasured experiences, your most memorable sensations. What is it that he says is more trustworthy than his experience on the mountain of transfiguration? The prophetic word. Pause for a minute and actually think through what he's saying. This astronomical claim that he's making, it goes against the grain of almost every fiber in our natural being, doesn't it? Like, think of this. How often will we say things like, well, I have always known that the Bible said X, Y, and Z, but one day this thing happened, and then I knew. Or it it felt finally to be true. These words have left my heart. Now, there's a level to which this is fine, and yet the reality is that Peter says we have it backwards. You see, Peter just said that my experiences, my feelings, my thoughts, my perspectives do not validate or prove the truth of Scripture. Rather, His Word tells me how I should feel, how I should think, and how to understand my experiences. He gives a vivid example because he's communicating an astronomically important truth. Even more important than hearing the audible voice of God. More sure than such a cataclysmic experience is the prophetic word. Now, Luke 24, 44 through 48, reveals to us kind of what Peter has in mind when he says the prophetic word. Let me read it. He says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. So Peter's point here is crystal clear. The written prophecy of God, the written prophecy of God's word is more sure than any other authority. It is more sure than any other authority. This includes overwhelming realistic feelings, beliefs, experiences, or sensations. 
He says it's even more fully confirmed, trustworthy, than hearing the audible voice of God splitting the heavens and perceiving His miracles with our physical eyes. So where am I to get truth from? How I feel? How I personally think? My own moral compass or that of my parents or that of the eras gone by? My own heart and experiences? How about from following my gut? That's kind of a good one these days. To these things, Peter says, no. We have something much greater. We have something much more guaranteed, that which is true. We need the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter then pauses to tell us what to do with such an incredible resource of blessing. He says this, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He pauses to give us application, to tell us what we ought to do with such an amazing gift of this. How diligently are we to give our attention to it? He says simply, pay attention. Isn't it obvious? If we have something so true, so real from God, we ought to pay our attention. He has written much to which our hearts must cling. His word is first to shine into our darkened hearts, that which is deceitful above all things and wickedly sick. And he washes us like a husband washing his bride with the word. And then he shines his light through these broken mirrors into a dark world. He uses this imagery of the light. And the light of the sun, it exposes the filthy dirt of the earth, doesn't it? And yet what's amazing is just as the light exposes the filth on the earth, it also grows life. For the same rays of sun that expose the dirt are that which draws into full bloom the flowers that decorate the planet with endless varieties of color. The Word of God, it acts as a lamp. It's to be a light to my path which allows me to see all that I need to see in my pilgrimage to His celestial city. And when is it that I will no longer need this resource from God? He says it right there. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He simply describes that great day when the Lord God will make every promise fulfilled in its fullest. That glorious day when the sons and daughters of the king will at last be in his presence. The morning star is this this sign that dawn is drawing near. It's this star that you will see that proves dawn is on its way. And so, as the lamp of God's word shines into the heart of his people, they're conformed to his nature. As he says earlier in this passage in verse 3, they're conformed to his nature and they know that the day hastens toward them when they will be with him and darkness in their hearts and in the world will be fully put to destruction. To God's glory forevermore. This moves Peter 
on to make his final call in defense for the trustworthiness of God's word. Firstly, we see that Scripture is rooted in historical fact and validated by the first-hand witness of the miraculous works of God. Secondly, that the written prophecy of God's Word is more sure than any other authority. I don't need to decide how I think about what God says. I need to know what God says so I can decide how to feel. To think. And then we move into movement three. Scripture was written by God as he sovereignly moved man by his Holy Spirit. Follow along with me in verses 20 through 21. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is something that we could probably, for the majority of us in this room, we can probably all nod our heads along with, okay? But don't just think of this simple truth that God's word is written by God. Don't just think of that as something that's pat and easy. Think about how we actually live day to day. Think about what old young Dalen was trusting in. And how easy it is for us all to seek so many other authorities. But here... In movement three, we see that scripture was written by God as he sovereignly moved man by his Holy Spirit. And think through the implications of what that should mean for me today. The writers of scripture make over 2,000 direct claims of the fact that scripture is God himself speaking. The verses here that we read are just one of thousands of verses throughout the Bible, that self-testify to be the very word spoken by God. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Meaning, these are not merely writings of nice, godly men who were given the freedom by God to write out some helpful life lessons because they themselves are really holy. There's a very big difference between a godly man having freedom to write because he's godly and God writing through man. Scripture is not dependent on man figuring out how to get things right. Peter is crystal clear here that there is one author that produces Scripture. One author of his word. Verse 21. For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So these men were active participants in one of the greatest gifts to man. The revealing of God himself through the written word, to which he testifies to the word made flesh, Christ Jesus. Because this word is breathed out, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 
by him rather than man. It cannot be anything but completely and fully perfect. There can be no issues with the original writings of the Word of God. Just as an apple tree can only produce apples. And pure streams can only flow through a pure spigot. Ultimately, why is it that Peter can have such confidence to say that the prophetic word of God is so trustworthy, even more trustworthy than beholding the glory of God through Christ with his eyes and hearing the audible voice of God? More trustworthy than a feeling of deep inner peace, a deep inner joy or a certainty of conviction. More trustworthy than any other authority. Because the prophetic word of God is always and invariably from the one true God. The giver, the definer, the creator of truth who cannot lie. We can know for sure that Peter considers the writings of the Old and New Testament, though the Bible did not reach its full and completed state for several decades. He considered it to be written by God himself. Thus, the word is from him and is as perfect and trustworthy as his character and being. So we need to consider then how we are to respond. What are we to do with this voice of God in his written word? How are we to respond? Well, I have three points. Two points of application and a question. Three points of application in total. Number one, trust the trustworthy voice of God, His written word. In what areas of your life are you tempted to believe that some other counsel instead of God's word is required? If you're in Christ, the Lord tells you that you've been freed from the power of sin. But how tempting can it be to think, I just can't stop that little pet sin that I so dearly love? Who do I trust? Perhaps you know that just as you've been forgiven by God in Christ Jesus, so also you are to forgive those who have sinned against you. But you're tempted to foster a bitter root in your heart, unwilling to trust that God says... It's better for you to forgive those who have harmed you. The Lord says you were created for His glory. Yet isn't it so tempting to believe the lie that my life ought to focus mainly on my own happiness? The Lord says that He saved me by grace while I was still His enemy. And yet how tempting is it to measure my standing before Him based on my own work and merit? In what ways do you look for God to speak to you in ways other than what is written in certain revealed word of God rather than the way he's clearly provided? We do this in a lot of different ways, don't we? We lay out our little fleeces. We try to change circumstances to know for sure that God is in this. I find it interesting how Martin Luther, in a scathing letter to the papacy of his era, 
this great reformer, he writes, he who wants to hear God speak, let him read the Scriptures. What are we running to to hear God speak? Is it what's been clearly laid before us? What, what are you running to to help you know what God's will for your life is? Are, are you relying on what I like to call liver quivers? You know what I mean? That kind of feeling you get when you think, ah, oh, I must now be in God's will. Are you trying to interpret His will based on your circumstances? Are you trying to kind of manipulate things and get the Lord to show up and talk to you the way you would like Him to talk to you? Or are you drinking to the dregs this perfect Word of God that was never written as a self-help manual, but it was written to reveal the one true God and walk with you in His perfect providential will for your life? Are you tempted to think, as I, if only the Lord would speak to me in the way that He spoke to Moses or Gideon or Elisha, if only he let me hear his word audibly, that audible voice, then, then I would truly follow him. Then I would be rid of these doubts and I would just know for sure. If this is you, then I just want to encourage you. Recall to mind the account in the Gospels of the rich man and Lazarus found in Luke 16. When the rich man who is suffering in torment speaks out to Abraham and he says, and I said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And Abraham replies, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. How many people saw the miracles of Jesus? How many listened to the entire day-long sermons from His lips? And yet, they almost all walked away. My lack of belief is not because God has failed to give me thorough evidence. My doubts are not because God has not yet proven himself. We must renew our minds here. Bind our hearts to this reality. And we must trust the trustworthy voice of God in his written word. Number two, pay close attention to the prophetic word as a lamp shining in a dark place. I believe that the majority of us in this room want this to be true of us. I really do. I really do. And yet this is why we desperately need one another. Because I have had very few interactions with any other believer in my lifetime who says that this comes easy, that this is simple, that this is quick or natural. It's quite frankly supernatural. Pay close attention to the prophetic word. As a lamp shining in a dark place, his word is meant to guide us through life. We're not meant to make it through life on podcasts and TikTok trends. 
We aren't meant to change through self-help and coping skills. God has given us His Word to shine a light into our hearts and cleanse us. Then to shine through us a light before a crooked generation that He might be glorified in the day of His glory. Do you let the Word shine into you? Do you let it reveal your sin that you may repent of it? Do you let it counsel you in how you are to grow? Do you go to it for wisdom and understanding in how you ought to respond to those who hurt you? Do you go to it to understand what you need to do in response to those you've hurt? When someone asks for your advice, is your first thought, well, what does the Word of God say? When you need someone else's advice, do you hope their first words are, well, the Word of God says? Do you let your assurance of salvation come from your work? Or from the work of God which testifies to the work of Christ on the cross in your place? Hear the hymn collected by John Rippon that, was point, that has pointed generations just like us into where we must find comfort. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. What more can be said than to you God hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Oh, let's cling to the word as if it really is from God. As if it really does speak to all things pertaining to life and godliness. As if it really is God speaking as He moves men by His Holy Spirit. Oh, I believe we want this if we are in Christ Jesus. The Word would testify to it. Let us walk in it together. For those of you who here would maybe consider yourselves unsure, Perhaps you would claim to be an unbeliever or, or you're just not so certain how you know, these dusty old letters could actually be as important as we here make them. That they should actually be the rule and standard for all things in faith and life and godliness. That they should actually be held to and treasured. I once uh, heard a joke at my expense that we're the kind of people who worship the Lord God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Scriptures. And while that's offensive, the reality is, who can we run to to know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, other than His Holy Scriptures? For those of you who doubt, or unsure, you, you maybe even claim to be an unbeliever. I just want to pose a question for you to consider, okay? A simple question that I pray will ring in your ear for a while. Who are you banking your life on by trusting in? Let me ask that again. Who are you banking your life on in trusting in? Why do you believe what you believe? 
To say that the word of God is not trustworthy means you must first believe you are trustworthy to make such a decision. To believe in a man who came about 300 years ago and created a differing philosophy where man would no longer need religion. Do you trust man now? Why would you trust one then? We all stand on very shaky ground if we have only to look about one another and see what the collective opinion is. Because how quickly and vastly does it shift through the ages? Who are you banking your life on trusting in? Are you sure that's wise? You may believe that you're somehow subverting God by disbelieving His Word. You may feel as though you're living your truth and taking hold of your destiny in in your way and therefore living in some kind of freedom. But sadly, God actually says that this is expected. For those who wish to reject Him must also reject His Word. To doubt His Word is nothing new. It's nothing in vogue. It's been popular since Genesis 3. In fact, he says that those who deny him cannot think rightly. He describes us, though he describes you who deny his word as darkened in your understanding, able to see the world but not understand reality. The word, word speaks of such a life, not as freedom, but one as slavery. A form of spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. Believing the one who holds you in captivity is your friend. When really they just wish to feast upon you. But there's good news. You see, the word of God is like a lamp. And it shines into a dark place. And His Spirit is able to awaken your heart to behold His glory. To be brought from your rebellion into the safety of trusting in the word of the creator, God, instead of the creation. Cease to seek like the serpent to go your own way, which will only lead to death. As a baby is born utterly unable to understand the world or their place in it, so also you need the Father's tender care infinite wisdom, and nurturing providence. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Call out to the Redeemer. The one who came to save exclusively the blind, the ignorant, and sinners just like you and me. I started out our time today by sharing my past struggles with a question. It's a common question. It's a question that if you're struggling with, you are not alone. It's a natural question. Can I trust what God says, or is there something else that I need? The aspect of this question that plagued my soul was whether or not to believe what God said about Christ and His saving work in me. I don't know exactly what you came in with this morning. I know that this question can touch nearly every aspect of life. Thus, I pray that has been made obvious by God's own word that the Bible's self-testimony, what it describes to be true of itself, 
is it trustworthy? It comes back with a resounding yes. So let me instead pose a different question for you to consider. For those of you who question, can I really trust what God says? Instead, ask this. Who will you choose to trust today and tomorrow and again the next day? Until time stops ticking and all truth is revealed in its fullest. God says we can trust his word above all authority. So what will you choose to trust? Who will you choose to pay close attention to? Pray with me. Father God, how often we neglect your word that you have given to us. How often do we run to other sources? How often do we run to other authorities? How often do we run to to pleasures or distractions or disruptions, other comforts that can alleviate stress or frustration or confusion or fear or worry or sorrow? Lord God, would, would you help us to trust what you say about your word? Would you help us to be like the psalmists? To cry out the beauties of your word. The majesty of your word. The glory of you that is revealed in your word. Lord God, would you help us to trust the trustworthy voice you have given us? Would you... Help us to pay close attention to the prophetic word as a lamp shining into our hearts and the dark world around. And Lord, would you continually bring to mind that question? Who are we banking our lives on trusting? And Lord God, would we hold fast to your word as the only authority the only infinite truth which is even more trustworthy than such an incredible experience on the mountaintop of transfiguration. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us in our endeavors for the rest of the day to go from here and worship you. Lord, would you bless our worship of you now as we continue in song and in response. We pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.